Kia ora, I'm John O'Hare and welcome to the first season of the Heritage New Zealand Pauheri Taonga podcast. Whether you're intrigued by the stories behind New Zealand's archaeology, the wonder of our collections or the history and culture of our places, the Heritage New Zealand Pauheri Taonga podcast series offers you a new way to experience heritage in the digital age. In this episode, we'll continue our conversation with colleagues from Heritage New Zealand Pauheri Tonga, asking them the question, what does heritage mean to you? In our last episode, we heard a range of responses from a variety of people involved in different areas of heritage. This week promises to be just as interesting. So settle back and relax as we ask the question once again, what does heritage mean to you? Liz Bigwood is the property lead for the Kirikiri Mission Station. She joins us now. Kia ora, my name is Liz Bigwood and I am the property lead for the Kirikiri Mission Station. So that means that I look after, with my team, the site which includes the Kemp House, the stone store and the grounds upon which they sit. It's a very popular site. It has a lot of visitors a year, possibly... Well, this year we were looking at around eighty to 90,000. Um, so it's a very, very busy place. We have no fences. So it's, as I describe, it's extremely porous. People can get in any way they like. And we run tours into Kemp House. There's also a tariff to get upstairs in the stone store. But downstairs on the ground floor of the store, there is uh, a very large shop, which is in keeping with the building. The building was a heritage, uh, was a uh, store right from its very inception and has continued to be so its entire life and it's wonderful to be part of that continuum there's also a cafe on the site called the honey house cafe which is a wonderful place to come and have lunch snacks coffee tea so it's a very popular site there's people doing all sorts of things everywhere most of the time sounds awesome where did your interest in heritage come from you know i i think my father was really instrumental in this because he was a bit of a loner when we were children. I have a family of one of four siblings and my father was very much into the outdoors and getting out into nature and we always had boats and we sailed and we skied and we tramped and even as a young child um, he'd take us all over the place and he'd always tell stories. So this is in this, I'm 55, so in the 60s, in the 70s, we were just always in the weekends and after school, we were always going places and he'd tell us stories about this. We grew up in Fakatani, and Dad would always explain Māori words to us. Um, so he'd say, now, do you know why this is called that? It's because of this, blah, 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 blah. And then he'd talk about, oh, and over there, did you know that this happened? And then he'd also t- tell family stories. And he has such a fantastic memory. He's 84. He's still alive today. And he's just got the most amazing recall of everything in his life and he tells he's a he's a he's a raconteur he just is such a good storyteller and so for me hearing this layered you'd look at an environment and he would just make it come alive you could start seeing the layers of human habitation start seeing everything that had gone on there in your mind's eye even though you might just be looking at an old field suddenly and it was populated by characters that he knew so he would also have his personal touch and I think that's where I got this real interest in what has gone before from him. You've probably touched on this in some ways Liz but what does personally speaking what does heritage mean to you? Heritage for me is it has a collectivism to it 
because we're all, you know, we're all alive in this day and age. And I think in some ways we think because we're alive now, we know everything about the now and the present. But in actual fact, we're trapped by the now because we are trapped within our own perceptions and our own ways that we deal with each other and communicate. I think one of the things about heritage is that if you can think your way beyond that and into another area of, or beyond into the history and start thinking about why people behaved the way they did, this gives us hints towards the human condition. Um, decisions that were made in the past, way people operated in the past, often on the fly, like most of us always just make decisions usually right at the last minute. I don't think that heritage is a, I don't think history is something that's a grand, glorious thing that we're trying to attain, you know, aspire to. I think it just connects us to our own humanity. So heritage for me is around people, uh, the past informing the future, hopefully, if we're clever and we can, da- we can get dip into it, we can learn from it. And I think that's something that probably we don't do a lot of as a species, but I would hope that as, heritage, as a heritage professional, I can aid in that process. That's what heritage means to me. Just, just uh, drawing from that, that, that big vision of heritage that you have, what do you see are the, are the biggest opportunities for heritage? connecting us to ourselves and connecting us to our past. Uh, oh, gosh. You know, I, I go back to the way Māori view the past as if they're going, you know, they view it out the front of the bus instead of the way Europeans generally look at heritage that's out the back window. If we can use the past to inform our future, our present and our future, that's a huge opportunity. I think the West needs to change its focus in some respects and take on another way of... of a, a, not necessarily drop our lens, but take on different lenses. We are capable of viewing things many different ways. That's an opportunity for heritage, to be able to be in that role, to speak to those historical things that have happened so we can learn from. I mean, we're talking about COVID-19 at the moment, but the the Spanish flu occurred in 1918, and talking about my dad's stories... This has always been very present in our lives, these stories from the past, and on my mother's side as well. But my father's family, his father, my grandfather, was one of five children. Every every person that they married, that, that, five, that group of five siblings married, was an orphan because the father had been killed in World War I and the mother had perished in the flu epidemic. So it was an incredibly strong family. So that kind of stuff resonates now I think about how did they cope they just carried on they they got on with their lives they they made lives of themselves they lived through horrific times those people first world war the depression the flu epidemic the second world war you know they're the people we should be aspiring to in some respects I guess that's the opportunity for heritage is to be able to talk about that kind of stuff and empower ourselves and enable ourselves taking a slightly different tack what do you see uh, maybe as some of the greatest threats to heritage? Ignoring it. Um, I think coming from a colonial society, the old idea of progress being this god, we've got to worship at the feet of this god called progress, which means always reinventing the new and getting rid of the old and smashing it down and like, we don't want to know about that, let's redevelop. I mean, I think that's that's a really interesting paradigm and I think um, when I think about, I've never been to Europe, when I look at it and I see this 
cities and you can read the you can read the cities in these various layers of different eras of, of existence so Tudor times right through the whole it's really interesting how they can maintain all that heritage there all those stories are right there they just need to be told and I think New Zealand as is an infant in these matters can start to walk in those steps I think it's really dangerous to knock it all down it just takes us back to year zero and there is no, you know, what's year zero, the Big Bang, what is that? I mean, it's great for big sky thinking, but we also need to anchor ourselves. So it's important to keep that continuity with the past and the present. Absolutely. Celebrate it and actually embrace it. Yeah, it's part of us. Like, I believe, I, I believe in cellular memory and genetic memory. I really do. And I say that from experience. I didn't realise I come from a long line of um, paisley weavers on my mother's side from Glasgow. They came out here in 1848 on one of the first ships in the Philip Lang into Dunedin. And I didn't realise they were paisley weavers until after my mother had passed away and I was going through some papers. And weirdly for me, when I was 18, I developed this extremely strong compulsion to learn to weave. I don't know where it came from, and I went and did, I dropped out of university, oh, actually when I was 20, dropped out of uni and went and took up weaving and found out later it was almost like it was within me, in my body, to make me do that. So, yeah, we carry it with us. We're not, we're not these weird, and I mean, I think this whole cult of individualism that the West also has going on is something we need to actually break away from. We have to honour the past. It's in us. So is the future. Nice. Um, just turning from from that that uh, the broad scope of heritage to, I guess, a more more personal reflection. What's the most fulfilling heritage project you've you've worked on personally? You know, there's been a lot of really cool projects. I think there's two that have happened at work. When I first started at the Kitty Kitty Mission Station, I was a site guide and I worked. Um, in those days we used to have the house open all the time and I remember I used to go and stand and look at the school slates that were on display and that one of them had been translated but it never made any sense and I was just, it would be, it would draw me I'd go and look, I'd stand, I remember standing there for sometimes when we were quite just looking at it and I'd do things around and just think about what it was trying to say so when I became the, heritage, the property manager in those days and Judith Binney was editing a book that was being written for the Kitty Kitty Mission um, site and the Kororipo Park, the, the, the Kororipo Heritage Park it's called now, um, I talked about the slates with her and she was wonderful, Judith, what a fantastic historian and a lovely person. And she organised for Professor Jane McRae at Auckland University to try and translate this particular slate. It was the Waiata slate that was found under the house, Kemp House in 2000. Um, Jane came up. We couldn't get the right light. We couldn't get it right. So in the end, it had to go down to Auckland. And I remember we, we took it and gave it to Stuart Park, who was my manager at the time, and he drove it down to Auckland. And that night, that slate and the other one, which was Hongihika's daughter, Rongo's slate, went down too because we wanted to compare the handwriting. And that night, the alarms in the house went off all night long. And I went in, I think, three times to turn them off. And I remember that night very clearly because it was also the same night that um, the Māori Queen uh, was... She had had the tangi and she was now moving up the country. She was going off. She'd been buried but her spirit was travelling up to Te Reringa, um, to Cape Reinga, Te Reringa Wairua. 
And so that stays in my mind about those alarms going off all night long. And I'm sure it was because those slates had gone down to Auckland. Something had changed and shifted. That was an amazing experience. And when they came back and we had that proper translation, it was incredible. You can, they're, they're now on display in Kemp House and you can see, the, see them with their translation. That was wonderful. The other one was trying to uncover who Tutu was, the old Māori gardener. And he'd been described with the wrong name and... Through a series of, um, I don't know, thinking with a volunteer called Care, she and I worked on this project and she went and interviewed an elderly lady and came back and it was, just, yeah, we proved it wasn't with the name he'd been given. And so we started looking in the church archives and found his real name. Turned out he was a slave child and he had a name and he'd been taken and, and redeemed by the Kemp's during a one of Hongi's raids when he can't return back to Kororipo and he'd lived on that site his entire life and it was amazing to uncover his identity and put some flesh around his bones, I guess you could say. Yeah, there's also something interesting about him in that he kind of haunts the place and I know some people don't believe in that but people talk to him, there are people who have turned up and from all parts of the world and they say, I met an old gardener in the garden called Tom because that was his name, Thomas, um, nicknamed Tutu. So, yeah, it's really interesting when you live with that kind of um, heritage as well, that whole other world of it. Yeah, so those two things have been really amazing. If there's one thing you could tell people about Heritage New Zealand, what would it be? Like I said earlier on, we need to connect with our heritage, all of it, warts and all, and we're a portal into that. We're a good, we're a, we provide a soft landing into it, if you like. You can also get some real doozy stories out of it as well. You can engage on many levels. Um, yeah, I meet the market. So where we are at the Kirikiri Mission Station, we, people come to us and we have to deal with them. And some of it's really light and frothy and some of it's really deep and quite dark and scary for some people at times. But we're here to do that, and we're not scared of it. So Heritage New Zealand, we stand in that role, and we are proud of what we do. And I really hope people can join and be part of that journey with us. Fantastic. No, that's, that's awesome, Liz. And thank you for your time just sharing um, the big picture of Heritage for you and also your, your, your very personal reflections too. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything? Any other thoughts? I just wanted to say that one of the opportunities we have, and I was thinking about this before and I forgot, is our secondary school students who are studying history and how I'm so excited that the government has decided that we're going to teach New Zealand history in a far more robust manner than we have done in the past. I personally take the secondary school students on tours at the Kirikiri Mission Station. They're the only tour group that I deal with now um, because I see them as so important to our future, our present and our future. They're our New Zealanders. They're going to run this country. They're going to sorted out whatever they, you know, their lives are really important and how they think. and So what they need to know about how we got to the treaty, um, who were the people that went before us, why are we where we are now, and where, what are we trying to be? What are our values based on what the past has told, has shown us? So I think our secondary school students are incredibly important and I really hope to be a lot more involved in um, delivering curriculum for them, I think, our organisation is in a really good position to do that. We've got some fantastic stories to tell. There's just when, you, when you've taken some of those tours with, with some of those secondary school students, how have you found them? Have they been receptive? You tell the story in a way and they'll, I captivate them. 
and I make the people come alive. You know, I, I find people in the story that are the same age as they are or I'll tell a story that's like, oh, my gosh, and they'll suddenly realise they're where they are and I take them on a journey and I find them, yeah, they're hard to start with, but you do it the right way and they start asking questions, they start telling you their stories, they really become engaged and they you open their eyes. Liz, thanks for your time. It's been awesome to talk to you as always. It's always um, refreshing and, and you always emerge with new insights. Um, thanks for your time and for sharing this stuff. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Totara Estate, just out of Omaru, is a property cared for by Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Taonga. It was from here that New Zealand's first ever shipment of frozen meat was exported to England in 1882, launching an industry that has put New Zealand on the map. Jim Howden is the property host at Totara Estate. He understands the power of story and performance in bringing heritage to life, particularly with young people. Uh, nice to talk to you today. Uh, would you like to just perhaps introduce yourself um, and talk about your role with Heritage New Zealand Pohiri Tonga? Good afternoon, my name's Jim Howden. I'm actually a visitor host at Totara Estate, which encompasses also um, Clark's Mill um, down our end. Also, probably best known as Black Bull Jimmy, which is the swagger, which is what I do. Um, when I first started over there helping out, and gave me a script and, you know, and just well, I threw the script away because I wasn't good at following instructions. So I made it up myself basically. But the clothes and the dressing up had just come naturally. Um, they had swagger, so all the rough gear, um, and it's just gone on from there. It, it just intrigues them. They like they like that dressing up, you know. They really do, and it's just part of the job now. You're always looking for old clothes. Well, you just get an old get a new pair of jeans and put patches on them and rip them to pieces. Jim, where did your interest in heritage originate, do you think? It's always been, not so much in heritage, but history. Um, I come from the West Coast, coal mining town, and I can remember travelling on coal trains and things like that. It's all gone. Walking across one of the highest trestle bridges in the Southern Hemisphere, it's all gone. So when I got a chance, I met Anne Sutherland about five years ago through um, Victorian Heritage Celebrations and got interested, and she invited me to help out and went from there, joined this, and it's just gone from there. Um, oh. it's, it's blossomed, it's got better, and it's getting more interesting as I go ahead. And spreading that word from our heritage to the younger generation or other people, it's, yeah, it's expanding sort of thing, more interest. Um, I'm looking for more and interesting places, like where I'm sitting now was part of Totara Estate back in the 1880s. So it was yeah, part of where I worked. <laughs> it's so a, that's basically, yeah. Uh, cool. That, that, that's um, that's a hugely important place too for for New Zealand's history. Well, like I say I never knew much about Tokyo about ten years ago, and I came down here for a show. And yeah, when you get back into it, it is, it is a really important part. It's Tokyo State, birthplace of freedom, just always there. Jim, can I, can I ask you, um, what, what just personally speaking, what what does heritage mean to you? It's the heritage is. To me, is it's part of being part of our heritage. Is this country. we're a young country, really, and our heritage isn't very old. And it's going back to your forebears and where you come from, and 
keeping that alive is really important. Like I say, I come from a small town, Blackpool, and a coal mining town, and history was birthplace to free or the, the Communist Party, supposed to be the Labour Party, all sort of started. And that history and heritage, and my West Coast heritage, is because we are a sort of a people apart. <laughs> mm. And it's, and it is important to keep that going for future generations. Um, it means, you know, when you're, when you're traveling overseas, you say you're a Kiwi and it means something. I'm from New Zealand. Everybody knows, you know, New Zealand. And when they come here to learn some of our history and our heritage is quite amazing. Um, but to me, it is, yeah, it's the people who have gone before me, like my grandparents, great grandparents, and, you know, all the people in this country that have made it possible for me to be here and to be so lucky to be here, sort of thing. Bill, mm. a year ago, I, I um, went to a, um, my, my wife's cousin's 60th birthday in Blackpool, it was held at Blackpool. And you, you, yeah, you get a sense of, of that, that sort of historical continuity, particularly on the coast, eh? there, there's, a, there's a real, um, I don't know what it is, a real identity that, that the West Coast has that, that stems from its heritage, I think. Well, it does. And I see, I'd never go back there and live. It's too wet. <laughs> yes, it is. And people know, and, and it, you just have to mention your name, and people will know if you're back on the coast and they know somebody mm. in your past or your family. And it's just quite amazing. It's, it's a big place, but it's a small place. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Uh, uh, Jimmy, you talked about sort of talking to uh, communicating heritage to young people. Um, do you see that as being perhaps the biggest opportunity for heritage, or, or there, are there other opportunities? The younger people, yeah, getting heritage across to young people is really difficult. Um, you know, we at Totra do open days and things where we, um, we have uh, different things. We set up a swaggers walk and we set up um, dressmaking, or not dressmaking, but sewing and things like that. And we were doing, what's it, bread making? So we we're grinding the wheat. Yeah, wow. And to, to tell these young people this is where it comes from, no, it comes from the supermarket. And you're going, whoa, wait a minute, it doesn't, that's the paddock out there full of wheat. They pick the wheat, wheat grind it, turn it into flour, make it into bread. Oh, no, 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 come from the supermarket. And another one I had was, we did this for the schools program we have at Totra, and I was taking them, I take them for a walk with a swagger. They sleep under the, in the Starlight Hostel, they go for a walk on um, Shanks's Pony, they have their swag, they go for a walk. And when I got back, this was a primary school, um, probably seven, that five to seven year old, and the teacher said to me, can you explain to these children, this is not just made up for television, this was real, this is how people live. That comes across as what we have to get across to these young people. This is, this is what actually happened. You're sitting in a place when you have your lunch at Totra where men had their lunch in 1880. This isn't just built to made up for a prop for a TV, and this is what's coming across. A lot of young people think it's just all made up. And it's a shame, really. When the penny does drop for them, though, when they actually get it, do, do you see do you see things change in the way they think? Well, they do. Um, I've got, I don't know where I get it from. I just want to dress up. I like the children sort of take to me. And um, you, after a while, you come across as, you know, the first thing you say, right, this is Aggie Aggie. You step out of line. I'm speaking. You don't speak. Yep. And after a while, they, oh, yeah, right. But they come around. And you can, some of them can't be bothered, 
but you reach two or three, four of them that really are interested, they stick with you. Um, and that is with the older generation, it's going back to their past. Um, and when they shake your hand, when they leave, that means you've done something. But you've got to be able to, as far as I'm concerned with heritage and presenting heritage, you've got to be able to read. As you meet these people, you've got to read and know to tailor what you're doing to them. You know, I, I, I'll go to sleep when someone starts talking about history if they're not entertaining. You know, if you're sitting there, you've got to embellish it in a certain way. And I think we're lucky at Tocha because most, or nearly all of us, will do that. We're dressed up for a start off and you get something different from everybody. That, that must be really rewarding when you when you when you see it make that connection and you and you see the the transformation. It is, especially when they're overseas visitors. Especially when you get you know people from Asia that have never seen a sheep before. I had a young man from China about two months ago, and he was twenty two years old, and he'd been married a girl from the country. Before they did not know where milk come from. He'd never he'd never touched the sheep until he got to Totra, and he was fascinated. You know. <laughs> Different worlds. <laughs> oh, it is, it's a totally different world. And then, like I say, they yeah, they yeah. really do enjoy it. But getting in there is one of the major problems. You know, I see, yeah. Um, one of my best experiences, I took an elderly lady come up and she said, oh, can I go for him for two? I said, yeah, that's fine. Oh, what about your husband? No, he's blind. He was sitting in the car. I said, no. So I took him around and he was an ex-farmer. So I picked up some of the smaller stones. As soon as I started explaining things to him, he knew what it was. And I yeah. spent, that was a slow day, I spent nearly an hour and a half with that couple. Yeah. And I, that was one of my best tours I've ever done. I really got something out of that. And they you know, shook my hand, said thank you very much, and away they went. Otherwise, he was just going to sit in the car for two hours or an hour. Yeah. yeah it's, it's what you do. Um, uh, Jim, we talked about the opportunities. Uh, on the other side of the coin, what, what do you see uh, as some of the greatest threats to heritage, perhaps? Complacency. Um, yeah. Saying, you, we've got this um, place here, we've got it up to a certain stage, let's just leave it there and just carry on what we're doing. I, you know, you can take some places to a certain point and stop, yes, but other places need expanding. Um, the experience needs expanded, like, say, a Totra we're doing, these Teton specials where people, we all dress up they get an afternoon tea and all the rest of it. But we do these tours, you know, we take people around and we do it, most of the properties or heritage properties do that. But there's got to be more, like I say, I put it down to, um, <laughs> it's going back, there's a pond at the bottom of a hill and there's a stream runs into the pond and it keeps yeah. that pond alive and all the animals come to it and that keeps all the peace around it. If that stream coming into it stops, the pond stagnates and finally disappears. It's the same. If you put total heritage in that pond and everything coming into it, it'll stagnate and finally go away. And we can't have that. Uh, we've got to have more of that heritage for future generations. Um, and I think sometimes technology can come into it, but I still think you need that person-to-person, -person, someone taking someone around talking to them one-on-one -on -one or one with a group of 10 or 15, that personal, I just do like that, um, carry on. Yeah, I just don't think we can just level off. We've just got to try different things. Oh, well said. Just one question. If there was one thing you could tell people about Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, what would it be? It would be, I say, we are an organisation here to protect um, 
to honour the past and to keep it going forward to future generations. And every one of us, well, all the people I've met in, in the Heritage of New Zealand have been passionate about what they do. Mm. Some people get frustrated because they can't do any more, but they are passionate when they're there about their heritage and what they're doing for it and going ahead. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's that's awesome. Those are those are, I guess, my my main questions, Jim. But uh, I just wanted to, um, is there anything else you'd like to, to to say? Anything else you'd like to to mention? I just hope that everybody's getting through their confinement. Like I say, <laughs> um, we're quite lucky here. We've got about um, six acres with about eight hundred apple trees. So, oh, that's all right. But also, I'm also going back and forth to total on my roster days. We've got animals to feed over there. So and chicken and yeah. so it's uh yeah and i just hope the one thing i miss about it is like i say it's meeting our visitors that's one thing i'm fine i'm missing um you know just talking to our visitors when they're coming up the drive it's uh, one of those things well let's hope they uh, we get back to normality soon and, and the doors are open again and, and those visitors keep rolling in and uh, it's great that you'll, you'll be there to meet them when they do This week is New Zealand Archaeology Week, so it's only fitting that we finish this podcast talking to archaeologist Dr. James Robinson. Based in our Kitty Kitty office, James talks about the different roles archaeologists play within the Heritage New Zealand Pōhiri Tonga. Uh, well, kia ora, James. Just like to introduce yourself to us and uh, talk about your role at Heritage New Zealand. Sure, John. Uh, my name is James Robinson, and I'm one of nine archaeologists who work for Heritage New Zealand, and I'm based in Northland. So my role is involved with the protection provisions of the Heritage New Zealand Pohari Taonga Act, and so it revolves around um, site damage investigations. It involves authorities for uh, people apply to, to modify archaeological sites and that comes through in a process with us. There is uh, quite a lot of other stuff that comes up. There's a lot of advocacy work, especially with the um, uh, human remains, koiwi, uh, being uncovered on the beach and things like that. So we have some technical skills there. So I'm, a, I'm an archaeologist, so my, my role is, uh, is, is basically interested and involved with the history of, of people uh, by what they leave in the ground. Thank you. Um, thanks for that, James. Um, just more generally, where, where did your interest in heritage originate? Where did it come from? Well, it was quite interesting. When I was about 11, um, there was a television series from the BBC called The Ascent of Man, which was a sort of a play on the descent of man by, by Darwin. And it was uh, by uh, uh, Professor Jacob Bronowski. And he was a real polymath, and he'd, he'd come from physics into, into the social sciences, uh, and he had been looking at uh, early hominins, uh, early, early ancestors of us, to try and use mathematical formulae to determine if their teeth were more ape-like or more, more human-like and things like that, whether they were on our line. And he, his series was one of uh, three that the BBC brought out, which was very game-changing, and it, uh, it got me quite enthused about about history and, and archaeology, but it's about people, John. Um, it's always about people. And, uh, and, 
And so we come under the umbrella of anthropology, which is the study of people, but archaeology is the study of people by what they leave behind. But really the reality is that you take whatever bits of data you can get when you're trying to study people, whether it's in people's heads or in, um, in books or, or, or in the ground, and uh, you try and pull it together to, to tell a, a cohesive and sustainable story. Speaking personally, James, uh, what does what does heritage mean to you? Hmm. It's an interesting one. I've been involved uh, as I, you know, I, I work for Heritage New Zealand, and that's really cool. I've worked for Department of Conservation, and heritage there is uh, is one of many values on a piece of estate. But essentially, what I think heritage is is history, and history is the story of our past, and. It, it gets sort of divided up into different uh, categories by different people. Um, either it's in books or it's, a, or it's an audio history or sometimes a, a, a video history or, or it's, um, it's archaeology in the ground. But to my mind, heritage is what we, what, what we have from the past that can tell us about the past but also uh, give us some insights into how we move forward into the future. And being in the middle of the COVID-19 virus at the moment, for example, the history of, of, um, of viral infections uh, around the world. And, uh, for example, the, the Spanish flu that came back from Europe in 1918 with the returned servicemen, which um, killed 8,000 people, I believe, in New Zealand and uh, about 500,000 in America. I may be wrong on my figures. Uh, and possibly killed more people than World War I in the fighting put together. So there's stories about how people back in those days went into isolation and some who didn't and how uh, that had made a, a significant difference in the mortality rates and things like that. So one of those things that it's a, it's a heritage issue that allows us to, to engage with the future, put it that way. In a sense, the past informs our present. It, it does. You know, the, the old expression, you know, if you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it. I don't know if it's quite that simple, but it's, uh, but it's one of those things that if you uh, have, have some information about the past, it can actually give you better options moving forward. Um, there's an interesting story um, from archaeologists working in the... Uh, in the plateau region of the southern part of South America, and there there was um, there had been a, 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 a an Indian civilization similar to the Aztecs and probably about the same era, uh, and it had crashed somewhere around about a thousand A.D. and and had collapsed, and when the Spanish this, uh, arrived, I think it was the Spanish, they 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 found just subsistence farmers and these rather strange ponds up in these highlands. And it's only in, in the last 20 years that archaeologists have worked out what these ponds were for, because they didn't go anywhere. Um, but they, 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 what they did was they'd, um, they actually provided moisture in a very dry environment uh, through the differential of heat over day and night. They would produce fog, and then it would allow the, the gardens to, um, to, to grow quite well. And the... the, the the local people had been using a variety of local uh, uh, crops in recent years, but uh, were persuaded to try and clean out a few of these and, and see if they could get them going again. And uh, what it did was it improved statistically their um, ability to, to guarantee pr production of food. 
because of there's always going to be moisture there. So in many ways, it's sort of a, 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 a historical heritage uh, 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 application of what happened on the Chilean coast with the Chilean um, rainforest, which uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It uh, hasn't rained there for 179 years, but it's a rainforest and it, it gets its moisture from fog between the differential between the warm uh, the, the warmth of the sea and the land changing, creating fogs. So that was a, an example of archaeology uh, using heritage uh, uh, to, to try and recover certain things um, in the past. My next question, what do you see are the biggest opportunities for heritage in New Zealand? Um, I, I see it, um, the biggest opportunities are revolving around the fact that New Zealand is the last bus stop on the settlement of the world by humanity. And that means we have a short history, a short heritage in that sense. But what it means is that the, some of those processes about how people have settled the world, uh, uh, which is so hard to understand in the rest of the world because it's so long ago, I've got a better chance to understand it here. And because uh, the Polynesians, when they arrived, became isolated until European arrival, there is this wonderful laboratory scenario where you've got people and you've got the land, the whenua, and then they're interacting to create, uh, to become Māori, uh, which uh, is, uh, uh, makes them uniquely uh, uh, different from their, their, their tūpuna back in the Pacific. And we can talk about processes of change, and that's where archaeology comes in quite strongly and we can look at things that remain the same and things that remain the, uh, that, that change. And of course, that's what we sort of are doing at the uh, Mangahawea excavation site in the Bay of Islands with our big partnership project with um, Natikuta Patukeha, Department of Conservation, uh, University of Otago and Auckland, and Heritage New Zealand. So it's, we've got a chance to look at those bigger pictures, John. Mm. I was going to mention, ask you what the most fulfilling heritage project you've ever worked on. I'm going to guess that Mangahawea is probably up there uh, in terms of the work that you've done. Would you like to talk a bit more about that, um, James? Yeah, I've been lucky enough to work on a number of, of interesting places, and islands in particular. I've uh, worked with uh, Ngāti Wai on uh, 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 Tafiti which is the Poor Knights Islands, did my PhD thesis on that, and I did various things with Doc on the uh, Manawatafi, which is the Three Kings Islands off the top of New Zealand. And they've got some really interesting and quite distinctive archaeology, albeit that they are completely integrated into the local mainland archaeology. So Mangahawea uh, is one of those islands, uh, is, is a bay on the Moturua Island, uh, which is in the Bay of Islands. Now, islands around New Zealand, some of them are offshore. They're a bit like um, the Chathams or the Kermadecs. And they basically become isolated because they're just too far away. Uh, others are uh, more closer inshore. You know, you've got your Cavallis, you've got your um, Great Mercury Islands, you've got your your Great, and then you then you get into your inner inner islands, such as in Hauraki Gulf with Rangitoto and stuff like that. But in the Bay of Islands, you've got a whole series of 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 islands that are quite large, and they're in such a sheltered area that they can be considered to be like uh, parts of the mainland. In many ways, to get around by canoe is easier than walking, and so these islands are part of this bigger bay, and it's very sheltered. So, but, but certain things happen on islands in slightly different ways. You actually have to physically go there 
for uh, things don't, uh, and 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 because they are they have less things happening in a sense, they're easier for archaeologists to see. Uh, it's 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 one of those strange things that islands the the more important the island <laughs> in terms of traditional history, the the harder it is to actually understand it archaeologically because too much is going on. So right. Motorua is quite interesting is because it's got probably at least three or four early settlements on it, early uh, what we call archaic or early Polynesian arrival settlements where people arrive, start living as Polynesians and then start that process of change. But where we are at Mangahawea Bay, it's on the, uh, it's the ocean beach side, it's one of the only ocean beaches on the island, and it looks like quite a lot happened early on, and then yeah. it was less important during the mid phase and then became quite important in the late phase. And what that means is that unlike Camp Bay on the other side, which was continuously used and occupied and reused, and, and this sort of reuse often destroys the earlier archaeology, Mangahawea seems to have an intact archaic early Polynesian signature that can tell us some stuff about the past. And but later on, into the early 19th century, this is after uh, Cook arrived and the start of the, um, the, the, the whaling industry and uh, the, the provisioning of the whaling fleets became a big early business for Māori. Uh, uh, and then into the musket war period, you get these uh, historic potato gardens turning up. So what we have is very, dis <coughs> very distinctive gardening going on with early on with... Kumara coming in very, very quickly, but also possibly Taro, we're still investigating that. Um, and then later on, we have these highly modified potato, white potato soils, which literally have a very sharp horizon difference between your Kumara soils underneath. So it looks like it happened quite deliberately. Now that matches our understanding of the musket war period in the early 1800s, maybe into the 1820s. And the traditional knowledge about this bay talks about Te Kemera, very important Dangatera and Tohonga, who was there, and, uh, uh, and it talks about how the Māori occupation continued after this sort of this provisioning trade died away to become uh, local, um, local supply. It sort of retreated back into being a, a minor place up until uh, probably the late 1800s when, when it got turned into a farm, and that's when Matutara Tanana Clendon's family uh, remained on the island and, um, uh, and, and farmed it. So settlement in the classic Māori sense sort of changed into a, to a sort of a European farm. So we've got a, quite an interesting history. We've had three seasons of uh, excavation there. We've got clear evidence of early Polynesian arrival, and this is from both carbon dates from around about 1300, but also from the presence of certain... Uh, animal and uh, species such as uh, moa and seal and dolphin which turn up very early in the um, in the archaeology and things like moa became extinct quite quickly so therefore if you find cooked moa the moa is still alive therefore it's, it's early also solana denticulata which is the cook straight limpet which had a, a strange distribution up into the Bay of Islands, it became extinct quite early on as well. We're not sure if it was um, uh, climatic change in the 1400s or whether it was uh, overfishing. We're not sure. No other shell species has been fished out. But these were quite large and they're quite tasty. But 
we don't really know, but all we know is that it did disappear, but we find it early in our sequence. So it's, we've got nice tight time frames. We've got artifacts that are clearly Polynesian in design, but uh, appear, to yes. be, appear to be using New Zealand power shell for their uh, manufacture. Now, you know, That's it's, yeah, that, that could have happened quite quickly. I mean, they're not going to be bringing vast quantities of raw material on these boats 22,500 kilometres. They're going to have food, they're going to have people, and they're going to have the kit of, of stuff, but there's, there's not that much volume you can bring. So it was an adaptation using new, new um, materials, and then, um, uh, uh, and then later the design changes. It's quite common around the world that you'll find that uh, people arrive in a place and they've got a, a technology, a toolkit, and they'll have design and material. And then the first thing that changes is the material, and then later the design changes. So, for example, um, back in the 80s when I was uh, doing my, my master's degree, we were working at Puerua, the volcanic cone in, in, uh, in Napui territory, near Pakaraka. And the uh, previous season, somebody had excavated uh, an adze from a terrace on the Pa, but the adze had been made from iron. So, wow. uh, uh, and the only sh ships which had the ability to make tools like that were, were whaling ships, because they had a forge. The wooden, wooden sailing ships, their fire was always a big, big, problem and danger, so they didn't do it, but whaling ships needed it to rend down the whale to, to the oil. And so it interpreted as being a, a trade good early on, when adzes were still used, as opposed to the change to axes, but uh, the material changed because metal was so much better in, than stone. The, the, the limits of stone are quite well known. People do really well with stone. But as soon as metal turns up, uh, people start adopting it. So that's another one of the things that happens early on. So, for example, when Cook was sailing up the coast towards Northland, he arrives in the Bay of Islands and people are asking for nails. And they were using them for, for, to make chisels and stuff. The actual points of your nail can be basically filed down to a very tight, very, uh, very tight uh, point. Well, uh, stone can't do that. And it doesn't take... Uh, uh, it holds its, its edge for a long time. They didn't know what a nail was, but they were asking for it because they'd been told that this is what you need to get. And uh, there are stories about certain ships in the Pacific where um, the crew was making quite a lot of uh, money out of selling nails to, the, um, to, to local people to the point where the ships would have a tendency to fall apart because they didn't have enough nails holding them together. <laughs> James, what do you see as some of the greatest threats to heritage in New Zealand? Um, there's the obvious threat of uh, development. So in Northland, for example, uh, the archaeology of Northland, both Māori and European history, uh, it would extend all the way down into the Auckland region as well. But Auckland's been highly developed, so most of that, we have, we have a, a better collection of heritage sites because they're that we were such a depressed part of the New Zealand economy for so long. So the obvious danger is development, uh, earthworks, subdivisions, roading and things like that, which can actually uh, uh, impact on the, the physical remains in the ground. And that's the obvious one, and it's real. But the, 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 the biggest, biggest threat is, is really um, ignorance. Um, basically, um, when things do get destroyed, uh, it's because people don't know about it. So one of the things that uh, I've been a very 
staunch supporter on is the idea of, of education and getting people uh, interested in archaeology, especially at the school level and history. And then you've got a whole bunch of advocates out there saying, hey, look, this is important, Grandpa, don't, don't, don't put your bulldozer through it, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't mean that we, we, everything gets preserved and saved, and that's not the case at all. But what it does do is it means that you've got the chance to, to actually assess the value of certain places. And so, um, and of course, when you start having the privilege of having traditional knowledge attached to these physical places, it gets really interesting. So, for example, there are many, many past sites in New Zealand. And uh, of the uh, 60,000 archaeological sites that are recorded around New Zealand, 15,000 of them are in Northland. And of that 15,000, a significant proportion are, are big pass sites. These are your hill forts, where people with handheld weapons use heights and ditches and banks and terraces and fences to make themselves as impregnable as they can. But once you get stories about them, you find out that some sites are going to be more important than others, and it may not be the archaeology that makes them important. So, for example, uh, Tipakenga Pa, just south of uh, Kaikoi, is... Uh, is um, is a, 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 a pa where Hongihika was born. And uh, it's traditionally a site where people uh, were trained up in how to make pa sites and how to defend them and how to attack them and things like that. So it's got a lot of traditional knowledge about it. And being right next to Kaikoi, it's a very important place. It's, it's sort of in heartland Napui. Uh, and as such, so, so suddenly this little pa, which is a yeah, nice pa, very nice pa, is, um, it has this other heritage value. So it's this mixture of archaeology and traditions that come together to tell you stuff about the past. So, um, and, and we, we have properties, John, you know, we have the, uh, the stone store, we have um, Pompalia House in Russell, we have the stone store in Kerikeri, and of course we have Waimati North, which was the farm for the, for the mission that was at Kerikeri. And, um, and each of those places, you look at the archaeology around them, and uh, it's only recently we've come to the understanding that when you've got <coughs> uh, Pompalia uh, setting up his, um, his mission in uh, Russell, he was under the protection of the local chief, Moka. Uh, uh, and, of course, the, the, the mission here in Kerikeri was <laughs> under, under the protection of Hongihika and his past site of Kororipo, right next door. And then Waimati North, which is the farm for the mission at Kerikeri and the road between the two was built by the missionaries, that farm of Waimati North was under the protection of Hongihika from his power of Akuratope, which was only two or three kilometres away. And that power has a lot of early historical accounts uh, by Marsden and Nicholas from 1814 and stuff like that, very, very early. So you've got actual uh, interesting archaeology there and very interesting history and it meshes together. And uh, so, so we're very lucky in that sense. So there's the opportunities up here to play uh, with some of these ideas and make some sense out of stuff, which is a bit harder to do in other parts of the country. So the opportunity is we've had it preserved for such a long time through the fact that New Zealand, uh, Northland's been such a backward place economically, compared, especially compared to Auckland. But now it's an, uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity. So things like outreach, things like education, things like tourism can actually protect and preserve some of these places by making their value be perceived by other people. It's not so much Heritage New Zealand saying thou shalt not do something. It's, 
It's actually, these places are important, not just because of history, but because they can become uh, places where people can go to and, and learn about the past in very, in all, uh, and also both, both digitally and, uh, and physically go and do these things. And they allow us to tell stories. So Rua Pekapeka, for example, the famous bat's nest battle site between the British and Māori in 1845, has got some of the most stunning earthworks still there. And that's because they had to de de develop earthworks to counter the heavy artillery and the exploding artillery that the British had. And so you've got a great place to tell stories. It's a place where uh, uh, pretty much everyone can, can go to and can probably have a connection coming back in some form or other. So it becomes a, a, a location and it becomes an emblem and it becomes a taonga in its own right. Now, uh, so, so, so these places are important and they can allow us to tell stories, but it allows us to move forward. And, and especially now that the, the, the government has decided that New Zealand's history is going to be taught at schools, we have this story about the general history of New Zealand, which needs to be told, but we have the regional histories, which are quite different. So, you know, down in the Waikato, you've got the, the New Zealand Wars of the 1860s, which are, um, uh, it, it's a hugely important story to tell. But up here in the north, we've got the, uh, the Northern Wars from the 1840s. And that tells a story as well. And it, it underpins that other story. And it's part and parcel of that whole thing. That's my last question. If there's one thing that you could tell people about Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, what would it be? Um, there is a lot of very knowledgeable people uh, who work in Heritage New Zealand. So Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga, is the lead heritage agency for the country. <clears throat> there are many heritage agencies, uh, all local councils, uh, Department of Conservation, you've got museums, you've got, uh, you've got consultants. All these people are all into heritage protection and management. But Heritage New Zealand is responsible for the archaeological and other heritage protection provisions. And we are the lead heritage agency and we advocate, ad, advocate for, for their protection, preservation, interpretation, uh, and and uh, and enhancement really, but to help tell stories, the the key thing about heritage, in my opinion, is that it's not about places really. It's about people. Hey, you know, hey tangata, hey tangata, hey tangata. It's about people all the time. The places are, in many ways, the archaeology is like a framework which allows you to easily hang stories on it about the past, which talk about people. And that's, that's uh, what Heritage New Zealand is involved with and I think takes uh, a very good role and that's something that people are starting to, to contact us about for that very reason. So I think that's good. I hope you've enjoyed our two-part exploration of Heritage and what it means. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank my colleagues at Heritage New Zealand Tonga for sharing their thoughts and insights with us. Thank you too for listening and for the warm feedback we received following our first podcast last week. We're back again soon exploring another aspect of the amazingly rich heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand. Until next time, from me, John O'Hare, Matewa.